0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of UBS's Summer of Artificial Intelligence series. Today's topic the impact of AI on jobs, education, and the economy. So, over the course so far of this four part program, we have been taking you on a journey into the world of artificial intelligence. We're tracing its truly remarkable origins, we're envisioning its inspiring and awe and jaw dropping future. And we're also unraveling the incredible ways that humans will be wielding its power for generations to come. And as you've seen so far in this series and our first two episodes, and we'll continue to for today and our fourth one in August, I am here to ask experts in the field of AI if it will fuel the next great surge in things like productivity, of course, innovation, and something we're all concerned about is economic prosperity. But on the flip side, could it be the next great threat to jobs? to industries and to humanity itself so joining us today we have two incredible guests to have this conversation with paul donovan chief economist here at ubs one of my terrific colleagues who i get to work with all the time so i'm lucky to have him join us for this conversation and we're very very lucky to have dr bruce lenthal who is a history professor and the executive director at the center for teaching and learning at the University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, it's really an honor to have you join us here today. I know we've got a lot to get to in our quick 30-minute time period, so thanks for being here. I want to remind our audience, however, that before we get started, we are going to be opening up for questions. So if you do have a question for Bruce or for Paul, please click that Ask a Question button that's right there on the website that you are watching this particular program. So Paul, I want to kick off the conversation with you uh, and let's, let's kind of go from a high level, and, if, and obviously with your role as uh, an economist here at UBS, from an economic perspective, what's the impact that you see generative artificial intelligence technology having? And, and I'm going to say this is relative to other technological advances in human history, things like the light bulb and electricity, um, you know, for example. I mean, we're talking about things that literally changed the course of humans, um, or even the internet. So h- how are you thinking about that?
1: Well, I would suggest it's, it's probably not quite on the same level as electricity or the internet, but it is part of a bigger series of, of changes that we are seeing. So things like uh, social media. Uh, um, robotics, automation, all of this, which we we encapsulate as the fourth industrial revolution. And I think uh, AI is a significant part of that. Now, I think where we have a distinct difference from, say, electricity is likely to be the speed of adoption, because electricity took a very long time before it really came to sort of its, its full fruition mainly because people weren't using it right in the first instance. Uh, If you think about the internet, that took a long time because you, you need to have a large network of people adopting before you can start doing online retail or anything like that. I think with AI, where the focus is essentially on corporates utilizing this, it's going to be a relatively rapid adoption process. And that speed of change is what makes it so dramatic.
0: You know, Paul, it's 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 interesting you, you bring up the idea of the light bulb and electricity and, and even the Internet. I remember and when you read the history books and even growing up as the Internet was surfacing, people were fearful of that type of technology, especially the first people who saw a light bulb come on. It's jarring and maybe a little scary. And the same thing with the Internet. People were very nervous about going there, and it feels like it's the same with AI. So it's interesting that we started there. Um, Bruce, let me bring you in here because I want to ask you, from your perspective, as somebody who studies the history of media, among other things. How do you think about artificial intelligence, particularly relative to some of these prior technological advancements that Paul and I have been chatting about?
2: So so first of all, let me offer two caveats. One, historians are notoriously fearful about predicting the future. So I'm going to offer that. And two, we as a society are fairly bad about predicting the future, too. You'll recall it was a decade ago or so, that everybody thought uh, massive open online courses, MOOCs, were going to transform the, the world and transform how we learned. And they've been not insignificant, but not transformative in it by any stretch. So with those two caveats said, uh, let me note that I think this is something that has a potential to be really enormous. I'm not going to go as far as electricity. I'm not going to go as far as something bank of printing press. I think uh, those are more fundamental changes than what we're talking about here. But I think what's really distinct
0: All right. We may have lost Paul there. We're going to try to get him. Oh, Paul, go ahead. We lost you for just one second. (laughs) Got to love the Internet, right? We're talking about it. (laughs) Here we go. That's the fear, right? That it's just going to, you know, (laughs) get you all kind of uh, uh, thrown away. So, Bruce, let me let me throw it back over to you. Just a few seconds of what you were talking about.
2: Okay, Did it? Did I drop out from uh, than- just
0: just a few about 30 seconds back? You were talking about obviously not comparing it to something like electricity, for example, but how historians are sort the of print- no- notorious for predicting the future.
2: Yeah, or I don't think it's as big as electricity. I don't right. think it's as big as the printing press, uh, but I do think it has the potential to be really enormous uh, because, it has the potential to impact so much of what we do, the way we work, the way we learn, the way we interact with other people or not people. Uh, what it means to be creative, much of how we think of ourselves as what it means to be human. And one one thing that I think is important here is that, unlike many developments such as television, which are largely better versions of what preceded, this is really about changing how we think about thinking. Uh, and so, in this sense, the the uh, technology that I really Come to mind to compare it to is the telegraph, and the telegraph is something where suddenly, instantaneously, you could collapse, it's communicate across time and space. So it changes your notion of what your community is. It changes your notion of distance. It changes your notion, as I said, very much of time and space. But of course, another fundamental difference is the telegraph didn't, wasn't in the home, and AI is in the home, and it's going to be in the home right from the get go. So I think it has the potential to really change some fundamental ways in the ways we think about ourselves.
0: Terrific. Bruce, thank you very much. Um, Paul, I want to I get maybe a little bit more granular, uh, granular here with you. Uh, when you think about generative AI, how do you think it's going to impact productivity? I mean, look, we're living in an age right now where inflation is a concern, economic growth is something that we pay close attention to, especially here at UBS. But it seems like when you think about what AI is capable of, we should be able to get more done with less effort. Is, is that how you think about it and how that potentially plays into the growth of the economy?
1: Absolutely. So the changes that come out of AI and in, indeed in the broader sense um, uh, of the fourth industrial revolution, a lot of these changes are really focused on improving efficiency, doing more with less, which is extremely important, not just from an economic point of view, raising living standards or potentially raising living standards, but from the greater climate crisis point of view, doing more with less is is absolutely what we've got to be doing over time. So all that's great. There is an interesting question here, though, uh, which is, will we actually increase growth with this productivity? Or will we rather sort of keep growth more or less stable and just use fewer resources to get that uh, economic growth. And so you know, society at large effectively will, will come down on one side of the equation or the other. You know, Do we have a strong boost to living standards coming from greater efficiency, greater productivity, or do we have actually more stable living standards and just a more sustainable future? Uh, and you know, we will go backwards and forwards between this. There is one caveat, I would say, though, about the increased productivity, increased efficiency argument, which is that I think because AI does challenge existing ways of doing things, there may be attempts to ring fence some parts of intellectual content to make sure that AI can't get at it. And that could actually introduce inefficiencies into the economy as well. Now, I think efficiency will be the dominant trend. We may see localized inefficiency. So for example, If UBS decides that my content as an economist is valuable and they don't want AI learning from my content, they may say, right, Paul, you're not allowed to go out on the Internet anymore. Everything must be sent out by fax, which is taking me back to the start of my career. Now, 30 years ago, when I was sending everything out by fax, this was not an efficient way of doing things compared to today, but it might then create a barrier between my content, which becomes sort of privileged content, and the content that AI has access to. So generally speaking, this is going to be raising efficiency, and we have to decide, does that raise growth or reduce the inputs? But I think there may be selected areas where we see inefficiencies coming in to sort of protect certain intellectual property from AI's access.
0: Well, let me dig in a little bit more deeply here with you, Paul. What do you think about the – there's a report out by Goldman Sachs saying that uh, AI, generative AI, could raise about 7 uh, percent, excuse me, in global GDP. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean,
1: whenever we get these new technologies, the, the, there are always these reports, and they come up with very authoritative numbers, which are quoted with lots and lots of reverence on CNBC and Fox and so on and so forth, and nobody really knows, uh, let's be honest. So, yes, I think that we could be seeing significant efficiencies, but I think it's going to be actually quite hard to disentangle the efficiency that comes from AI, from other efficiencies that are coming through in the economy and the potential boost to growth that comes from that. So flexible working, for example, is reallocating resources very substantially here in the UK, where almost half the population now work from home. uh, We are seeing online retail, which is also more efficient. We are seeing changing consumer spending habits, which are reducing waste. All of these things come together. AI is a part of that. And I would prefer to say, you know, the fourth industrial revolution in its entirety is going to be adding a substantial amount to uh, economic efficiency over time, which may manifest itself in growth. Um, but I wouldn't want to go out and put a definitive number on it because I think, frankly, at this stage, that's simply guesswork.
0: Yeah, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that honesty. And it's really that's what we're here to do is kind of demystify what's out there currently. So, Bruce, let me bring you back in because. Uh, besides being a history professor, something that you also do is you lead the Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Pennsylvania, where you work with faculty members across the university to assist them as educators and also to share best practices, which, as we all know, is just quite the best way to get better at what you do and to help teach your colleagues about some really inef- uh, some efficient ways to do work. So, I mean, it seems like artificial intelligence could have some pretty profound implications for how we learn as humans and how children are being educated. So how are the faculty at Penn thinking about these questions? And more specifically, do you think that artificial intelligence can either enhance or degrade the overall learning experience for, especially for kids?
2: Uh, So that's that's a fantastic question. And it is one that is top of mind for many, but not all of our faculty. And faculty are taking a lot of approaches to this here, uh, and not just here, but of course across the country. Uh, There are the faculty who are saying that we need to prohibit the use of AI, and I'll get into a little bit more about what motivates that thinking, but it's the idea basically that our students need to develop certain practices of thinking. They need to develop the ability to problem solve on their own. They need to develop certain writing skills on their own. And bring, and if we have students working with AI, they won't develop that. Uh, now, that also asks the question, of how can you possibly do that? And that's a big, big question. We also have faculty who come in and say, we want to allow AI, but we want to circumscribe it. We want to make sure that we put bounds around it so students are still developing the other kinds of thinking skills we need. Uh, and so you might imagine somebody that says you can use AI for brainstorming your paper, but you can't use it for the writing of it. Or flip it around you can't use it for the brainstorming but you can use it for for the revising your writing uh, and in these cases i think faculty are being thoughtful and often saying but students are responsible for errors that ai introduces and that's really important the recognition that ai doesn't get everything right and that there's a human need to continue to think about the errors that, that arise uh, we also have faculty who are saying well actually The ability to use AI is not easy, and that's a skill we need to teach. And so where should students be learning it? And then the fourth place that faculty often are thinking about this is, how can I really partner with the AI uh, to to help students learn in ways that better than what they could do on their own? Uh, So a faculty member that I know says, he usually lectures on how to do a certain coding that's part of the background for an assignment. But he says, I'm gonna skip lecturing on that. I'm gonna have the students just go in and do the assignment Uh, and when they have questions about how to do the coding, go to the AI for that. And that that kind of a coaching model, Mm. I think, suggests that students can learn by doing much more quickly. Uh, So those are a range of pieces, but uh, all of this gets to the second part of your question, which is, is this going to be positive or negative for student learning? And again, just as I described in those methods, you get a real debate around that. Mm. Uh, It certainly forces us to rethink what we want students to learn but is it going to be beneficial or are students going to learn more or are they going to miss out on learning some of the essential uh, things that are that are really critical for being able to use AI well and to be able to function in our society and as, as potential uh, workers do?
0: Yeah, it almost feels like as educators, you know, and certainly I'm no educator, but it seems like you might have to even sort of change a little bit your tools on how you're teaching because if students are going to be trying to use, uh, you know, large language models like ChatGPT, for example, for projects, you kind of have to be creative in the way that you have the students use it, but also figure out a way to have them learn. So how are some of the faculty at, uh, at Penn, you, you know, using or maybe even not using some of their tools and in their instructions?
2: So that's great. And, and what you're getting at there is, is the importance that many faculty would say that you need to know how to do a certain kind of thinking. You need to know a field really well to use AI well. And if you've, any of you have played around using AI in an area you know well, uh, unless you have a lot of, you'll realize very quickly asking a, a simple question gets you an answer that doesn't make a lot of sense if it's an area of your expertise, and you need to be thoughtful to push beyond that. And so there are faculty that are saying, uh, I'm going to prohibit it, and and we don't have, frankly have good answers uh, for how to prohibit it. Uh, there's, there's talk about how do I help students understand the value of learning to do this thinking for themselves how to, to, so they can understand that AI is a force multiplier, to, to quote one of our uh, faculty members, that it's only as good as the you're thinking it, that already exists. Uh, but that's that is one of the fundamental questions that people who are worried about it ask is, how can I teach my students to do the thinking they need to do if I don't have a means to prevent something that's so widespread and so easy to use? And again, on the other side, you get faculty who are really thinking about. I want students writing prompts. I want students engaging with the AI as part of their learning experience. Uh, we've got one faculty member who says, "What my assignment is going to be is a dialogue with the AI around a particular philosophical question, uh, and can we make that dialogue a way for them to test their own ideas?"
0: You know, Bruce, it's interesting. You, you know, and, and the education probably is the biggest. Topic between that and jobs, which we're here to talk about here, and this kind of dovetails into to both of those because as a as a professor and you're also teaching teachers, um, you have to kind of think about what kinds of skills are students going to need to develop to be competitive and successful in this post AI world, where we we already see many corporations are either adopting or considering adopting artificial intelligence. So what is it that you're teaching students, given this explosion in the popularity of the tools? That they may have to use in a job someday, Uh,
2: and and I think that's a great question. It's a question that faculty have not yet figured out the answer to. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of conversations with faculty, where they say it's a two-prong question: one, what are the skills they need, and when do I teach them? Because maybe if you think back to calculators, right—the example that a lot of people go to—just because we have calculators, we still concluded it's important students know how to add and subtract and multiply and divide, Uh, but. That's not what we teach at a higher level. We think that's a basic skill, and then we uh, let them loose using the calculator. So, thinking about when we teach the skills is also relevant. And I'll further, add, the the idea that skills that we teach is new—that's that's happened through throughout education, right? For centuries, memorization was the highest form of learning, and now we would say that's quaint and and uh, a waste of our time. So, yes, but some of the new skills, the writing of prompts, you're, many of you may have heard the term prompt engineer come out. Uh, and that's a term that gets a lot of talk right now, that the ability to write prompts is in fact an art. We've got a, a couple of professors here who put so much emphasis on the ability to write prompts that their expectation is that the prompts are a prop, as long as some of the papers that many of you have written in, in various colleges, courses. course, has been there, there's, I've seen 500 word prompts. And that ability to write, a, to, what that really means is to think, how do I work meaningfully with the AI? At the flip side, you also have folks who are talking about what I really need to teach my students is judgment, not how do they get the answer, but how do they evaluate an answer. Uh, and we, we have a uh, one science course that is all about estimation, which is don't solve the problem, but can you make a estimate a guess about what's a reasonable solution? Because that kind of judgment is essential because AI is perfectly capable of, of offering a solution that looks credible, but isn't. Uh, and so maybe we think about where do we teach those skills around judgment and focus on that rather than simply around the skill to do a problem.
0: Yeah, I've even seen uh, some colleges and universities like MIT, for example, are doing these short six-week or eight-week courses, uh, I think seemingly for adults like ourselves, to kind of go back to school, get a certificate in AI integration so I can use it in my job, Uh, sort of take it back to my company and say, hey, here's how we could be using that. So obviously these skills are things that uh, older adults who are not in college are going to have to learn as well. But I mean, like you said, there's prompt engineers, there's also robotic scientists and data scientists and all these jobs that tap into to AI that, uh, that maybe, you know, the ki- people in uh, college-level courses might want to be learning about. And, Paul, I guess that dips now into the next part, which is about the jobs, because after education, or maybe it's out of order, maybe the first thing people always say is, The AI is gonna take away all of the jobs. And I think that might be a bit of an exaggeration, especially as I did my research for this conversation today. But clearly, greater automation and productivity are going to have an impact on the job market. So how are you thinking about this?
1: So this is no different from every other industrial revolution we've had, right back to the first industrial revolution, the Luddites of the first industrial revolution, smashing the weaving machines in the north of England, because they were going to take away the jobs. And of course, they didn't take away jobs, they took away specific jobs, or they downgraded specific jobs, they gave the job of being a textile worker, lower social status, absolutely. But We didn't have mass unemployment. You ended up with, you know, full employment coming and going over over time. Uh, Back in the 1960s in the United States, President Johnson ordered a blue ribbon commission to investigate whether the third industrial revolution was going to destroy jobs. And he really panicked about this. He thought that, you know, there was going to be mass unemployment in the United States, got together an eminent panel of economists. He told him to stop being so silly. Uh, It was all going to be fine. And I think that's the saying this time. Ultimately, we are absolutely going to see jobs being destroyed, but we're also going to see jobs being created. There will be new jobs coming in. Bruce was talking about this here. We'll, we'll create the job of a prompter coming in, in the future. Um, but there will also be other jobs that sort of expand. So one of the things that technology will be doing, AI will be doing, is lowering barriers to entry, which may create new jobs, make new jobs more viable. So. I can remember growing up in the 1970s, my mother yelling at me at the top of her voice, which was extremely powerful, uh, get off that computer. You are never going to make a living playing computer games. Well, guess what, mum? You know, If, if I was live streaming on Twitch now, I would be earning far more than I am as an economist, I'm absolutely sure. So you lower the barriers to entry. You create a totally new job because now you can make playing computer games a form of mass entertainment. We also, of course, if we create more efficiency in the economy, we potentially create more leisure. But people don't spend their leisure time sitting around looking at the wall. They want to do something with their leisure time, and that creates more jobs. So we are creating jobs as well as destroying jobs. The problem, of course is what economists refer to rather clinically as frictional unemployment. What that basically means is if an ageing economist loses their job because AI takes over, it's extremely unlikely I'm going to become an overnight TikTok media influencer. And so do you find that the people who lose their old jobs are able to transition into the new jobs that are being created? And to a certain extent, whether that's because of social perceptions or lack of skills – that's going to be the tricky thing to manage so we're not going to destroy jobs as a as a total but we are going to change the nature of jobs and i think the guiding rule here is if half of what you do can be automated away change your job if less than half of what you do is going to be automated away your job will change
0: yeah by the way i'm still i'm still having this uh, uh, image in my head of you having little Paul having a conversation with his mom about the computer. But uh, but it really does prove a really important point. You know, I was playing Nintendo as well, and, my, and they get off that thing and, you know, getting on the computer. Now all I do is live in a computer for even doing this job, uh, which you would think is just standing in front of a camera and having conversations with people. But there's a lot of back-end work and producing and pre-producing that has to get done, which I think AI might be able to help with in the future to create efficiencies and also, um, you know, maybe simplify jobs. And I think that's something that a lot of executives are looking at. According to a a study by Search Logistics, they say about 95% of executives they surveyed have said that AI has already positively impacted their businesses. So it's here, and we just have to get on board. But thanks for that, Paul. Um, Bruce, let me bring you back in, because obviously in this conversation, now we're saying, all right, well... And I think, obviously, I know what the answer is gonna be to this question from you, but some people even question the cost and the value of four-year college degrees. Um, And it's not because of AI. There's been a lot of other factors in there. And look, I understand that this is a very speculative question. You don't have a crystal ball there, but does AI constitute a threat, in your opinion, to the four-year college degree, the traditional degree?
2: I think we, although I'm gonna say ultimately that I'm pretty optimistic about the value of the four-year college degree in the, at least in the short medium term. I think we should say that yes, AI absolutely constitutes a threat to it, just as as you've just alluded to, many kinds of things today constitute a threat. These are not new questions that are coming up. I think Paul's point about the friction and who loses jobs is a real thing, and one of the things that's that's different about at least the way some people talk about AI is that the potential for job losses is, is for people who are coming out of college with those four-year degrees, and so as opposed to automating uh, different kinds of uh, manual labor, which has a different kind of job frictions that are created. Uh, and so I do think this is this is something that, that is a real question, and I've heard uh, people talk about their telling me about their students who say, "What's the point of doing this? Because I won't have jobs when I graduate." Uh, That all said, so I think these are all real questions, they're all going on, what the purpose of? I do think that it offers also a possibility to revitalize the value of of that degree in this conversation because we can start thinking about what is the real value of this degree? What is the real value, not just of the degree, but of the learning process and thinking about what we want our students to get out of this education. The biggest advocates for artificial intelligence that I talk to on our campus Say that machines may be better at than humans at particular tasks, but that humans working together with machines is the best of all, at least for the moment. Uh, that,
0: that's great you know what and and Bruce that that dovetails really nicely into some questions that we've received from the audience. and I think this one certainly this is for you and the uh, the audience member writes in, didn't educators feel this way about asking Google questions and searching YouTube for things that used to take hours? to research, uh, education has adapted to that. Um, why not AI and time as well? And I, I'm sure that you probably have thoughts on this in, in, in your own discussions with educators.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that's a great comparison and it's worth thinking about what is different. Uh, it is certainly true that a hallmark of, the, of higher education is helping students figure out, not just the answer to something, but how can I find the answer to something? Uh, and so, when you can Google it, it's a much easier process than going to the card catalog, looking, flipping through those cards, then walking to a shelf in the library. Which I, I hope I am not alone in remembering doing this. Uh, so it's certainly easier to Google it. But that intellectual process of saying, "Is this a reliable answer? What would I need to know to decide whether this is a reliable answer? How can I trust this? How do I measure this against other sources?" That intellectual process is still front and center. What I think is different with AI, at least in the moment, and it may well change, is that AI hides some of that sourcing a little bit from us. And it's easy for one to forget to ask those questions because the answer looks so authoritative. We didn't have to choose among several websites that we got pointed to. It's it's given to us, which might turn around to to say, this is all the more important reason to get this education because you don't know whether that is trustworthy just because it sounds like it. And maybe we're at a moment in time where the ability to question what sounds credible is a, a skill we we want to really value.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. And by the way, I am also someone who remembers going through the card catalog in the library and uh, sort of understanding how the Dewey Decimal System worked. Uh, obviously, anybody under the age of 35 here probably has to look up and see what that is. Enjoy yourselves. It was a fantastic way of cataloging a library. Um, but uh, anyway, so you're not alone in that, Bruce. Paul, another question came in from our audience, and I'm going to pivot this one to you. Um and it talks about the, the question is, how can we ensure that AI advancements are not going to uh, disproportionately impact certain industries and communities and let me tack onto that my own thought about sort of inequity and inequality in communities
1: so this is um this is going to be a challenge because ai is going to disproportionately affect certain industries and certain communities that is the nature of technological change that you get um certain industries very suddenly turning around now that can be positive so something that previously was not thought to be valuable uh, suddenly acquires a value and obviously, what we tend to focus on is the negative, that you know, something which previously a job, which previously had social status, uh, a sector which previously was considered very valuable, is sort of automated away, the social status and the income go down, that has a, a disproportionate effect. So what we tend to find when we get these disruptive technologies is a lot of mobility going on in terms of, of society. But... The real damage, of course, is that the group that is on the way down doesn't appreciate that fact. And what we tend to find coming through, and this is one of my big concerns with AI, AI, because with very rapid adoption, people don't have the, the time to adjust. And so if you are finding yourself sliding down the income scale, the social scale, then the tendency is going to be to go towards... Scapegoat economics. If you know, it's not my fault, I'm losing my job. It's uh, the fault of immigration. It's the fault of foreigners. You know, here in the UK, we've been blaming the French for nearly a thousand years. Works very well for us. So you know, you blame somebody for this, and of course, it's not their fault. It's just disruption and technology. But from that, you very quickly descend into prejudice politics. You know, vote for me. You know, we'll we'll build a wall. We'll keep them out. That kind of approach. And we're seeing this across the developed world today. This rise of scapegoat economics and prejudice politics. So what we need to do is to try and introduce the the flexibility, And to Bruce's point, maybe it's that uh, older people need to to go back to learn how to be more flexible in this, this circumstance. Try and introduce the flexibility so that if you are in a profession which is being adversely affected, you can find your way out, but also to try and fight against the scapegoat economics and the prejudice politics, because that will be really corrosive, really damaging in economic terms and undermine a lot of the benefits that society might otherwise achieve.
0: Great, Paul, thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time and we don't have time to get to all of the questions that are coming in, but we promise we will respond to you via email. So thanks for sending those in. But before we wrap, something that we're doing on this series is asking all of our guests the question, what excites you most about artificial intelligence? And Paul, let me stick with you here and then we'll give Bruce the last word.
1: So I think what is really exciting here is the potential to get access to A lot more information in a very succinct way uh, and to be able to then interpret that in a way which is going to make the global economy more efficient in a in a very very significant way as we look ahead particularly when aligned to other technologies and that i think offers enormous optimism for humanity, particularly as we face the climate crisis. Efficiency is what we need, and AI, I think, is going to be able
0: to be a part of that process. Terrific. Bruce, I'll ask the same question uh, to you. What excites you most about AI?
2: What excites me most about AI is actually the ways it forces us to think about things we already do that are not necessarily AI. The way when when I talk to faculty about this, about what it means for education, the first thing they go to is they have to think. I guess we really need to think about what does it mean to be educated. What are the most important things for, our, for us to learn, and to be able to ask that question, it, it, it inspires that. If you talk to the if you look at the conversation about the possibility of AI replacing uh, writers, uh, for instance. You know, there's a strike going on related to that. Uh, I think the idea that it forces us to think about how does being creative relate to being human? It, it's inviting us to ask these big questions and think about ways that we want to try to answer them to, in ways that are in our best interests.
0: Terrific. Bruce, thank you very much. Gentlemen, uh, it's a pleasure to be with with both of you. Thank you for joining us for part three of our series on the summer of AI here at UBS. Bruce Lenthal and, of course, Paul Donovan. Gentlemen, thanks very much. Good to see you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great. And thank you all for joining us. Please join us again on August 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. This is going to be for... Uh, part four of which we're calling the applications of artificial intelligence. So we're going to round out the whole first three parts into how does it get applied in the real world. So we're going to be joined by artificial intelligence expert Sam Charrington. He's a noted AI industry analyst. He's an advisor, a commentator, and a host of the TWIML AI podcast, which was formerly called This Week in Machine Learning. So took that down to an acronym, I think, to make it come out of his mouth a little bit faster. But make sure to tune in For that, again, that's August 10th, just a couple weeks from now, ubs.com forward slash summer of AI, where you are watching this live show or perhaps the replay later on. And for more information, you can check out the site. Plus, all of the episodes that we filmed so far are there for replay, the origins of AI and investment implications and opportunities of artificial intelligence. Thanks, everybody. From New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. We're so glad you joined us today. We'll see you on August 10th. Have a great day.